Welcome to the Charity Network News Podcast, inspiring you to make the world a better place. Our host is Lex Lumiere, an award-winning therapeutic artist whose family legacy includes over a hundred years of art exhibits and providing artwork for international non-profit fundraisers. In our show, you'll hear mind-blowing interviews from philanthropy leaders or creative souls, as well as news and insights to help you make a positive impact in your community. Now let's jump into your daily dose of juice. Please join us in creating excellence. afternoon. My name is Lex Lumiere. I am with the People State of the Union 2021 as a citizen artist for the U.S. Department of Arts and Culture. Today I have with me Bonnie Torney and she is with Mission Jade and I really would like to introduce you to her so that you can learn a little bit about her passions and why she started this nonprofit organization. Bonnie, why don't you tell me a little bit about your start and how you got involved? Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, my name is Bonnie. I live in the Houston area. I'm the founder of Mission Jade, which is a nonprofit that fights against the labor trafficking of boys in Guatemala. We currently work out of Houston and, and we're, we're trying to work remote going down there since the pandemic. It's been a little bit difficult. Um, sure. I myself am a survivor of sexual child exploitation, which is how I got introduced to what human trafficking was. Um, I went through my situation in the woodlands in the Houston area. Um, I, I was not aware of what trafficking was until I had experienced it myself. I, I went through child sexual exploitation from 10 years old up into 19 years old. I founded the organization when I was about 20 years old, and now we have been around for about three years. We currently work with indigenous children in Chimaltenango, Guatemala, and children in hazardous work sites in Zone 3, Guatemala, which is a uh, a 40 acre dumpster. So we work with an indigenous community and children that live inside of the city dumps. Wow. So did you, were you, were you raised in the woodlands or did you end up migrating to the woodlands? I was mostly raised in the woodlands. I would say most of my life I was there. I, I went through a, a brief kidnapping. I went through a, a brief stage of homelessness. Um, I had my daughter when I was about 15 years old from an adult and that's when we were going through homelessness. So I've lived a very fast paced life, <laughs> but wow. now I'm, I'm very stable in my house. I'm married, I'm taken care of, which is probably the only reason I'm out of the exploitation. I was not able to pull myself out of it. Um, my husband actually was the person who, who got me and my daughter out of this situation. Um, mm. I would say that the, the biggest factor on fighting trafficking was just realizing how many people enable it and how many people support it and watch it happen and don't do anything. So I left, I left everything I knew just to, to make a stance against this. And I've always grown up down in Guatemala because my brother's from there. My sister lives down there. So, you know, you just have fresh eyes once you're out of the exploitation yourself. And we got to it. <laughs> Lots of work immediately out of it, immediately helping people. There was no setbacks. I'll talk about like a, a case of divine intervention with meeting your now husband. Yeah. You know, I always say that, you know, you're, you're put in a place at a specific moment in time, divinity has you there, whether it's to work and touch a life, 
to volunteer and touch a life or to just change someone's life or someone's going to change your life. Even if it's just showing you a new perception or a new way to see your surroundings and your environment and look at you like you've done like a complete transformation of where you came from. It's interesting that you bring up the woodlands because the woodlands um, I have been involved with doing things for A21, United Against Human Trafficking, for quite a few years. And what I was really surprised to find out, because when I lived in New York, um, I have a background with modeling and fashion, dealing, I did commercial photography for years. So, you know, we always have ears to the ground, trying to listen to, like, what's going on and where there might be issues happening. Um, but I think the issue of exploitation that's really not addressed very often is the clientele base, you know, that, you know, you cannot have this business without customers, you know, and it's a large amount of customers if you have half a million women and children being trafficked every year just in Houston alone. That's not even including the other coastal cities, right? And so it's amazing to me that, like, you were able to come out of all that darkness, you know, and, and if you don't mind sharing, I just have a question. So what what was the first encounter? Like what pulled you into the exploitation? How old were you at that time? And like, did they lure you in with something? Like what was their like method of strategy? I'm just. Yeah, uh, two things. One about the woodlands. I, I love that you're bringing up the specifications on the woodlands. I have to say, I've met a lot of NBA Rockets players and they themselves are easily trafficking women for whatever reason, they don't need the money. And a lot of cartel members used to just do a lot of drug trafficking through the woodlands. And recently, I, I think they've just really upgraded onto the human trafficking aspect. So it's gotten very, very bad in the woodlands. If anybody's wondering why we're, we're bringing it up, they do own a lot of the neighborhoods and schools over there. But for me and myself, um, my first exploitation went through when I was 10 years old. It was just a family friend. And you know, he went, he, he sexually harassed me when I was older, like 14, 15, but that was my first um, scenario through it. And I had gone through, you know, rape through it. And I had not had the sex talk, of course. And, you know, it, even going through the sex talk at 11, 12 years old, it still never clicked in my head. I, I do have to say the sex talk was obviously not that productive if, if the if the thing never you're, came you're, you're a child. I mean, you're it's, not it's hard, yeah. still innocent. It's hard for kids to put their heads around it because even if you say something is bad and yet it's already happened to you from an adult, it's still really hard to put two and two together. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. I believe it. And I'm always, you know, I have a lot of young nieces and nephews and, you know, I'm always concerned for their safety. And it's interesting because... The Woodlands, it's not the first time that the Woodlands has come up in conversation. There was also an issue where the traffickers were literally buying mansions in these very high-end neighborhoods like Champions Forest. They would buy the entire mansion to have their sex parties to, yeah. and, you know, and it's this weird cross between you have the people that are being trafficked and then you have the willing people that are in prostitution as a profession. And then you have the legal part of it, which is some of the people that are not protecting you are by law enforcement should be protecting you, right? And they're frequenting these places literally as an investigation, but not always, right? They're customers. Um, yeah. and, and, and I, you know, it's, you know, you're to the ground, we hear stuff and, you know, there are angels set up in certain places to help, 
you know, in some of these things, but it's, it's a team effort. And in order to shut it down, there's so much money involved, you know, and when the cartel comes in, you know, they've got a couple million dollars to drop and buy 10, 10 mansions, or, you know, they'll have the mansion there for six months and then they'll move the mansion. And you saw it a lot during the, um, the Super Bowl. You know, even when the Super Bowl was in Texas, they had one of the mansions set up here. And I thought, what is that thing doing up? You know, and it's amazing that it's such an elite clientele in some aspects. And then you have the other side of it, that it is genuinely a challenge to deal with what I consider sex addiction. You know, yeah, definitely. I have to say not, I would say I, mo my story is different than the average sex traffic person because most of the people that violated me were actually strangers. And I don't feel like a lot of the survivors I've met go through it with strangers. I feel like they go through it with pimps or a specific trafficker or a recruiter. You know, there's usually a, a specific person, you know, monitoring how this happens. But for me, my story was like, for instance, I got uh, kidnapped by the Woodlands Mall by a stranger. I, I went through, you know, a gang rape by random college students. I've, it's, I oh. hate to say it so brutally, but I feel like I got tossed around at any place that people could get their hands on me. People I had never seen before, places you would never think would happen. So I don't, I still don't have a lot of these answers on why strangers felt the audacity to act this way towards me. But the elite people that I did bump into definitely were, you know, very violent. They have lots of money. And, and of course the police are easily bribed off, very easily bribed off, which is pretty much mm -hmm. why it happened for so many years for me. Even, even working, I had my own place at 16. I worked two jobs and I was raising my voice about it because it was starting to get very old. I, I was having stalkers, you know, it just was, it, it was all around me and I felt so consumed. So I, I went to the police and you know, the only thing I got was jokes and disrespect. But now imagine me being 13 going through this, I would have stood no chance. So I think the police in the woodlands have a lot of work to do for survivor advocacy. And I also think in general, survivor advocacy really needs to be increased. So if a, if a person says they went through something, I, I personally feel like they should believe until proven wrong, if that situation needs to be. But the survivors will not come out and speak until you make them feel comfortable to come out and speak. Well, and feel safe because they say the average survivor cycles like seven times. And, you know, the try, I think anytime there's waterways, there's always easy in and easy out, you know, mm -hmm. because I was, I was, you know, in the park the other day, I walk the park all the time and I befriend a lot of people and talk to different people. And one of the homeless men was talking to me and he said, you know, where, where are they trafficking all these people? Because we don't see it. He's like, it's like, they're so good. We don't even see it, which is huge. Cause you know, they're on the ground all the time and they know all kinds of stuff. And so it's amazing to me that there's this just completely underground funnel of what I consider sex addiction, the abuse of women and people's not dealing with their mother issues. You know, <laughs> I know that sounds wrong, but like a lot of people have psychological issues towards their mother and you see it in these men and in people that are violating. But when you're violating children and young people, it takes it to a whole nother level. Like, I feel like something is wrong, mm -hmm. you know? Well, it is really wrong, but it's dishonorable. And, you know, in down South and in South of the border, you know, you have all the T-towns that are these huge prostitution hubs.
And they're, you know, the women of Juarez, the 20,000 women we still don't completely have identified, the people on the border that we haven't identified their bodies. You know, you have this mass amount of trafficking and it's like, okay, so where are the answers? And is it because there's not enough women in law enforcement to stand up for other women? You know, um, are they so afraid because these are people with so much money that, you know, someone like, I don't know if you're aware of Ted Gunderson with the FBI, he passed away many years ago, but he busted a um, child prostitution ring run, being run by the CIA. And they wrote a book with a senator called The Franklin Cover-Up. It was huge, I mean, huge scandal. If you can even find the book anymore, but it's been an ongoing issue. And I feel like with technology, it's making it worse. You know, because now you add the pornography aspect of it on top of the fact that you're trackable anywhere you go just on your digital footprint or if they put a chip on you, you know, and it's amazing that you got free because in the woodlands, I'm very well aware of that there is a, um, and many of the girls know there's a limo service up there that delivers prostitutes and traffic people all day long and like He's never been shut down, mm-hmm. you know, no one hasn't shut him down, you know, and it's, it's sad that there's so much corruption involved that, you know, you're one of the lucky few that have like gotten out, you know, really gotten out A21, which is also an international organization pulls people out. And it's so admirable on that end. And then for you, you're dealing with these little boys from Guatemala who are going through probably both a little bit of sex trafficking and labor trafficking. You know, can you tell us a little bit more about that and how these children are exploited? Sure. Uh, we haven't had any sex traffic boys yet with us. Not that we're aware of. We're still getting integrated into the indigenous community. I, I just came back from there in April of this year, and that was that was my welcoming on how I was able to start working with them. Um, so their exploitations, usually in the agriculture sites, they are young children skipping school using, you know, machinery like machetes just uh, intense, intense work without education opportunities. So we're, we're raising money to open up a school for them. Uh, we're working with some older children right now to, to try and prevent the labor trafficking because the indigenous peoples are usually targeted by uh, corporations, coyotes, uh, other labor traffickers. And then in zone three, the city dump, it is, it has a big wall around it, even though it's 40 acres. And We've met some children there that are used as drug mules uh, from drug members like drug cartels and guerrillas. And they usually monitor what happens inside of the, the city dump with some of the children that we work with. I'm being very uh-huh. specific because not every person in these communities go through this, but the children that we do work with, it is not uncommon for them to have to experience this. We do hope to dive deeper into this topic of labor tra- of labor trafficking, learn more about debt bondage, you know, migration, where do they go, uh, what members are are using them. We, we plan to do that, but we're just having to slow down because of the pandemic. That's really been the toughest part about it because the country's been on lockdown since the pandemic has started, which in return has lacked access to water, lacked access to food, I feel like we've had to take a few steps back to go back to providing the basics. Mm-hmm. So uh, I just want to clarify. So with this dump, these children are having to traffic drugs across this dump, or are they looking for food in this dump? 
They eat the food. They live, eat uh, the food. And whoever is born in the dump usually dies in the dump. It's seldom that people actually leave it. There is a school that we work with where children who are outside of the walls of the dump, but still are technically in the parameters, they get to walk to the school and this nonprofit provides them computers. So there is some hope for people outside of the walls, but if you're inside of the walls, that's where you usually are just born into it. You don't know what's happening outside of it. So they usually just live and die in the dump. And there's a fresh garbage truck that comes every day. Wow. You know, and now you understand why so many people are running to the border. You know, we just <laughs> had 13,000 people in the border this morning, you know, in South Texas. And I know the nuns in McAllen are like, we need support, <laughs> you know, because they're so yeah. overwhelmed. But it makes so much sense because people want a better life, you know, and I think it's, it's a sad day, not just for Guatemala, but for Mexico and the heritage, you know, because we weren't raised that way. My grandmother wasn't raised that way. And I think it's dishonorable to sell children like that or to service them like that and not allow them to have a proper education or not to really protect their innocence. And that's a huge piece of it is how do we go forward protecting the innocence of these young boys and of other children, you know, in the world from exploitation, from cartels and from, you know, sex trafficking and labor trafficking. It's a lot. I definitely have to say cultural competence is my best friend in this journey because we plan to open also for child soldiers in Sudan and then for sex trafficked boys in Pakistan. And even though we do have our set program and our set customs, just just building a program that is easily adjusted to what the people's need and what the communities need, that has been just the best way to go about it. Because what we do in, in Chimaltenango will probably always look different than what we're going to be doing in Zone 3. And that's just because it's a completely different community. I mean, they, they face very different situations, even though we're still stating that we're fighting labor trafficking. It's just a huge umbrella that we haven't well, I don't know how many people have tapped into labor trafficking uh, services, but I feel like there's a huge deprivation for boys and for um, indigenous communities. And then of course in zone three, it's very difficult for people to get to because it's it's just a dangerous place to be. Well, and I, I wonder as also as like Americans, how we contribute um, to the problem because when we buy goods that are cheap, you know, when we, want to play pay the lower price point of some of these high-end retailers you know we have new york fashion week that just passed with london fashion week that just went paris fashion week is coming you know we as consumers we go and we buy these goods and i just sometimes wonder how are we you know exploiting that market you know is it because we want that dollar shirt that you know this child is having to work for nothing or five cents an hour and you know to really like get clarity on how can we clean this mess up because I feel like it's even with the pandemic has gotten even further out of hand. Definitely. Yeah. One of our board members, I'm sorry, one of our volunteers, she is studying her business degree in college. Her name is Rachel, but she's studying her business degree to specifically fight labor trafficking of children in uh, workshops and clothing workshops. And we're, we're starting a new article called Conscious Consumerism Corner. Uh, we, mm -hmm. we got one of the newsletters out, but we're going to start doing it a, a monthly report on ethical products and non-ethical products from the countries that we're working in. So hopefully on that's this brilliant. Point, I know I'm so excited. She's she's wonderful because people have these questions. They know that you can't 
possibly have a shirt for let's say a dollar like someone somewhere is not getting paid so it's it's time to shed the light since we're in the the era of new clothing all the time and, and fashion so I love that you brought that up well it's you know it's ego-based I lived in New York for like you know six years and I was in the fashion industry and uh, I worked for the parent company of Gucci and the crazy part is is that you know, we don't talk in the, in the, in, in public about the outsourcing of how this material is made. You know, we're moving, um, we have 83,000 employees at any given time. And then we were moving over a billion dollars worth of products and it was like a machine, you know, and people don't think, well, where exactly are they getting the materials for that bag? And, you know, you would see the outsourcing in India, but that wasn't on my table because it wasn't, what I was responsible for, but you think about that's labor, you know, all of that is a labor force that's moving all that product to me, sex trafficking, not legal labor, still labor. Instead of selling a product, they're selling a person repeatedly and making residual income off of that person. And, it, and it's, it's wrong, you know, at the end of the day, it's wrong and it's dishonorable to people, you know, to children really, and to families and the gifts that they've been given spiritually and, not just that, but in their own talents, you know, and knowing that we're, we're blinded to a certain aspect that slavery is still existing. It's just existing under new labels, you know, yeah. and that we as consumers do have to pay attention. And I just think that's brilliant to make people aware of the products. I've been trying to do that all of, you know, secondhand September for Oxfam and, you know, kind of bring that into the notion that, hey, you know, can we go a month without buying brand new stuff, you know, because we're producing all these goods and they go into the dump, oh, mm -hmm. you know, they go back into the dump. And um, is there a way that we can recreate how we've done things to empower people instead Definitely. of impoverish people? It is. And it, I, I think it's just so interesting because you're, you come from a very high end fashion industry and even for me working at the local farmers markets and artesian markets, I still see mom and pop shops purchasing Indian bridal jewelry for, you know, 50 cents and then reselling it for, for $20. So even on the smallest scale where people think they're just getting hand-me-downs instead of realizing that there was a person in India who made that jewelry and then they're reselling it and marketing up to me, even that contributes to what, you know, unconscious consumerism to say the least. So it's, it, there's a lot of work to be done for, for preventing labor trafficking and creating awareness about it. Cause not, you know, even if you kind of look at sexual exploitation, there was this huge movement of, you know, traffickers, billionaires, this whole name brand thing. And now we're finally scaling it down to like, oh, local people can do it. And now here we are on the internet where you can find articles on why porn is toxic and how porn contributes to sex trafficking. So I feel like they found they started so big and then they finally have scaled it down to, you know, create a pathway for people to understand how it happens. I'm I'm very much ready for this type of situation to happen for labor, to happen for labor trafficking, looking at how the average person contributes to it not knowing it does, leading all the way up to the big name brands, like for instance, Nutella purchased acres and acres of indigenous lands in Guatemala, and they said it was for preservations. And what did they do? They destroyed it with waste. The, the, the beautiful Mayan lands just gone and nobody talks about it. Nutella is a very loved 
food. And, you know, even to this day, if I said that out loud, I'm, I'm sure that people would still end up buying Nutella, but it means something to me not to purchase that because I know what they do. And then same with the artists that resell Indian jewelry. So it's, it's just one step at a time. It's, I think it has to start with awareness, lots of education, lots of awareness, and then we can really dive into the whole movement. Well, and I think where you've seen a big change in that, especially like with the earring example, is technology destroyed the wholesale market. So originally, and I'll give you an example. So my grandparents, they owned a bridal shop for 50 years and my grandmother would go to Dallas to market buy wedding dresses. And a lot of these are made by individual people, um, no big factory stuff because you would get limited because no bride wants to wear, you know, the same outfit that 20 other brides wore, right? And so she would go in and they would buy wholesale, right? And then they would bring it back to their shop and sell it for retail. Well, in the larger in stores, the retail market is 200%, which is quite significant. But when the internet came into play, what it made the mistake of doing was making wholesale available to the general public. Mm -hmm. You know, like Alibaba is a wholesaler. People are buying tons of stuff off that. It's not meant for the average consumer to get that. It's meant for like a large department store to buy that wholesale so they can have the cost difference. Mm their lights on and to sell you know what I mean and that's where you notice that all of a sudden everything went wholesale everybody wanted wholesale the cheap clothes came in you know H&M came in all of these big retailers that can produce you know millions of stuff H&M has a little bit higher quality control standards with their environmental things Um, but it was interesting because the diminishment of that wholesale market meant that everybody could access the cheap And there goes your labor trafficking, you know, right through the roof. I'm going to have to do some more research about these bigger names. I haven't looked into them too much since we just started this conscious consumerism and we focus on the agriculture mostly, but I'm going to, we're going to have to get to the bottom of it. Like I said, it's, it's such a new topic. A lot of the time people don't even realize that labor trafficking is usually, even sometimes when I say human trafficking, they automatically jump to sex trafficking. So there's just so much to explore, so much work needs Mm -hmm. to be done. So tell me a little bit about how your program supports these young boys. So walk me through. Of course, so Mission Jade stands for Joy, Abundance, Dreams, and Education. We're we're operating our programs under these names because they give us such a direct focus. We are providing monthly food boxes, about 15 pounds each. We just sent 60 of them. We're sending another 40 of them. So we're starting the food box program because that's what the indigenous community has been needing right now since of the lockdown and the pandemic. We are also raising money for operation education to open up a secondary school for them. And then we are launching, I think it's under operation abundance that we're doing prevention education for labor trafficking in zone three. Um, So we're gonna be having children that are learning English, children that are getting educated, starting to enter the workforce, um, the prevention, education, and labor trafficking. So that way, whenever they do have the opportunity to pursue a, a career, a full-time career, then they will not become at risk for being exploited. That's great. That's great. At least it's changing lives. You know, it's opening up new doors. It's bringing people hope. So tell me, where do you see your organization a hundred years from now? I love this question. I got to talk to my team about it today. We were very interested about this question, especially with your background. We are 
very happy to come up with this answer. We decided that the work of today is going to impact tomorrow. So what we're doing today is supposed to help through the generations and provide services to victims and survivors on all spectrums. Our impact of Jade is supposed to be tangible for now and the generations to come. Of course, our vision is to eradicate labor trafficking, but we cannot do it without awareness, prevention, education, and community support. Our current and future programs do set a foundation that can be repeated, customized, and improved through every culture and generation, which is what we plan to do in the next years when we go to Sudan and when we go to Pakistan and establish Wenguate. So all in all, the Jade Joy Abundance Dreams and Education mission is where we see it continuing and, and stabilizing because these are things that every child deserves to have. Absolutely. You're breaking the cycles of poverty and oppression. You know, there's a great book you should check out sometime called Banker to the Poor. It's written by Muhammad Yosef, I think is how you pronounce his last name. He won the Nobel Peace Prize for being the first economist to ever study poverty in Bangladesh. Um, and he eradicated 90% of the poverty in his country through education. Wow. You, yeah, you will have to uh, send me the book cover if you wouldn't mind. I would love to read that. That's yeah, awesome. definitely. I think you would find it inspiring, you know, and they have different divisions here. You know, I, I've done volunteer work for them for a long time. So you would really, you'd really appreciate his work, I think. Because he realized when he was doing his studies, he would send his students out to do studies of the local economies and what was happening with trafficking. And what he found out was a lot of it was women were impoverished, whether it was through loss of a spouse, single family income, um, or the children were impoverished. And that was, you know, just eye opening. And he, he called it, um, I think it was the feminization of poverty. But really, I think when any woman is impoverished, her children are going to be impoverished, you know, and that's if they even have a mother. You know, sometimes they don't have a mom. You know, sometimes they've just been taken. And I think the beauty of your work is at least you're bringing them hope. And you're bringing them an opportunity to get out, you know, because you resurrected your own life. You're able to give that back to them, you know, and that's such a beautiful gift. It's such a beautiful story to tell, you know, how you came out of this dark place and you used all of that pain and all that heartache and all that suffering to not just transform your life, but the life of all these young men. And you have a team that's behind you supporting you every step of the way. Yes, it is. It is a lot. I personally don't always feel like the superhero. You're making me feel like a superhero right now. That's why I'm bringing it. But I know, I know how much I appreciate my husband for helping me get out of my dark times. So I, I hope that feeling of, wow, my life could have been horrible if I wouldn't have had A, B, C, D, or I could have gone down such a bad path if somebody didn't, you know, guide me in the right way. So just any effort to bring that to somebody else's, uh, yeah, definitely the best gift in life. <laughs> no doubt about that. Well, and it's amazing. And because you're a mother, you love from a mother's heart. Yeah, and yeah. Mom don't, moms want to see their own children be successful, but they also want to see other children thrive, you know, and I don't think any of our children should be threatened with labor trafficking or sex trafficking, you know, that exactly. their innocence does need to be protected. Exactly. So my name is Lex Lumiere. I'm here with Bonnie Chorney, and she is going to read her People's State of the Union Poetic Address. 
Here at Mission Jade, our focus is representing the underserved and unheard voices of labor traffic victims across the globe. To the male survivors of exploitation, your representation and justice is our top priority. To the indigenous community, Mission Jade is here to support your people since you are the foundation of our countries. To all the working children without access to education, you are our top focus. Thank you so much for having me. Beautiful. Very beautiful. And I hope a hundred years from now, we've solved this crisis, you know. We can do it together. <laughs> it takes a village to raise a child. <laughs> now imagine saving millions of them. <laughs> we have to do it together. Yes, it does. It absolutely does. And I'm so grateful to have you here today. Thank you so much for doing the work that you do. It's a huge contribution to the community, especially the children in Guatemala. It's a beautiful thing. And I'm sure your impact is not going to stop there. Keep going and stay positive, even in all the adversity. You're resilient. And that's what you're going to teach them as well. Thank you so much. You're welcome. It's not letting me stop your video, so we're going to just hang out for a minute. <laughs>